The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you uh, count in uh, uh, a Soviet control commission... You count in the Finnish communists, you count in the state police that's uh, uh, more than welcome to uh, do their bidding, then uh, you have, a, have an equation that's uh, very uncomfortable to, uh, to, to a great deal of Finns. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast for April 27th, 2022. Finlandization is a troubled concept. It is generally used to describe the attempt by the Soviet Union during the Cold War to hold Finland in a position of neutrality and friendliness toward the Soviet Union, even while politically Finland was more aligned with the West. In recent years, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it was sometimes brought up as a model for Ukraine to straddle the boundary between East and West. But for Finns, Finlandization meant something quite dark the long-term subjugation of Finland's politics to the will of an authoritarian neighbor. I sat down in the virtual jungle studio with Antti Ruokonen, who wrote an article recently for Lawfare titled Why Finlandization is a Terrible Model for Ukraine. We spoke about Finland's experience in the Second World War, the imposed restrictions on its sovereignty because of this Finlandization during the Cold War, and the dangers of seeing Finlandization as a model for peaceful coexistence with Russia. Antti spoke with us in his personal capacity, not representing the public sector in Finland for which he works. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 27th. Finlandization's Harsh Realities with Antti Ruokonen. Antti, welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. Uh, Share with us a little bit about where you are from in Finland. Thanks, David. Uh, really glad to be here. So uh, I grew up in a small village uh, about 80 kilometers from the western coast of Finland in the in the idyllic countryside of Ostrobotnia. And importantly, about as far as you can get from the Russian border in Finland. Is that correct? Yeah, just about. I mean, I could travel to some of the uh, outer islands in in some Finnish archipelago, but yeah, this is this is about as west as one can get. And now you live not too far from there in Vasa, the the city on the Gulf of Bothnia, correct? Yes, that's okay. correct. Now I, I raise that because we're going to talk about the concept of Finlandization 
and the relationship between Russia and Finland. And I want to note that your understanding of it and your opinions of it do not come from living on the border facing Russian troops right right across from you, but actually just from growing up in Finland. Uh, what is the education in Finland like on issues of national identity and foreign policy, and especially the history of Finland from independence through the the Winter War, World War II timeframe in American language, and uh, and then the Cold War. Well, I do have. Uh, I mean, uh, some of my family uh, has grown up uh, quite near the uh, Russian-Finnish border, so I I, I do have some uh, minor stories from there. But basically, yes, I, I I grew up very distant from from the frontier, so to speak. Even though Russia is kind of omnipresent because uh, it it looms large in uh, in Finnish history, mm-hmm. so you you wouldn't call it a daily sort of presence. And uh, Finnish schooling uh, tends to give us a good basic education, a good civics uh, civics tutoring of sorts, and uh, we do receive uh, courses in uh, in general history, general European history, world history. And also naturally Finnish history, and uh, as one might expect, our history is uh, especially in the in the 20th century. It's uh, di- divided up by wars. Uh, our war of uh, independence in 1918, the, uh, the the Winter War in 1939, and the Continuation War right right after that, and uh, Lapland War right after that one. So 1944 to 1945, and uh, then. Obviously, the uh, the Cold War period that followed, and the uh, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the uh, end of the Soviet Union. So, we we do get a condensed uh, mm-hmm. teaching on all of that. But you you obviously have to understand that uh, that history is only one aspect of schooling in general. So there is a limited amount uh, that sure. can be uh, used for that. But yes, we we do get a good good basic sense of the uh, general outline of events. And uh, from my own vague recollection, I believe it's uh, conveyed to us in a, in a rather uh, neutral form. So we can, we can sort of make our own interpretations uh, as, as young, young adults or Mm -hmm. young children. But at least it gives you the foundation for that level of understanding, which Honestly, most Americans don't get. So I do want to talk a little bit about the history. And the reason why, of course, is because there have been people bringing up the model, if you will, of Finlandization for Ukraine right now. And this this is not a new concept. Henry Kissinger, famously almost 10 years ago, wrote an op-ed talking about Ukraine not being on either side, but being a bridge between them. And he explicitly cited the experience of Finland, which does have some trouble, especially now when you have people like French President Macron talking about Finlandization, later walking it back, but using the term as perhaps a solution out of this this crisis that was caused by the Russian invasion. So I want to go yeah. back and talk about that very concept. You wrote an article for Lawfare recently called Why Finlandization is a Terrible Model for Ukraine. 
let's build up the history of it. Where, where did this term come from and in what context? So the, the history is, is kind of obscure, but uh, the first uh, well-known example of it being used was in the 1950s by an, by an Austrian uh, foreign minister called Karl Gruber. And uh, he used it to try and point out that Finland was uh, worse off than Austria was because uh, while Finland was under the thumb of the Soviet Union, Austria was uh, under the combined influence and uh, actually direct mm. occupation by both the Western allies and the Soviet Union. So he was trying to uh, create a narrative where Austria was better off because uh, it was uh, influenced by two sides instead of uh, one one major power. But Right. It didn't achieve the effect that it was meant because I believe from what I've read, uh, he he was uh, he was forced to walk that back quite quickly. So in that time frame, it was actually used both as a pejorative, that is, we don't want to be like Finland, but it also, for some people, conjured up this image of some kind of peaceful neutrality, almost this bucolic state, because. Finland was able to manage this this position, but in fact, it, it was born of the history of Finland and the Soviet Union, which is an entirely unpleasant one. So let's let's rewind a bit from the fifties and sixties and go back to the Finnish perspective from the Second World War. How did the Second World War evolve in Finland, much different than truly anywhere else? Because that'll be a good foundation for understanding the Finlandization policy that took place afterward. Right. So the uh, after the Second World War broke up between uh, Germany, Poland, and the Western Allies, uh, that basically gave uh, via the Molotov-Ribbentrop Agreement and its secret protocol, it basically gave Soviet Union as well a free license to do as it wanted in its own sphere of influence, which included the Baltic states, which it uh, in quick succession uh, forced into an occupation state. And uh, then uh, Finland's t- turn also came in uh, in the autumn of uh, 19, uh, late autumn 1939. Uh, fortunately, there was a diplomatic uh, build-up to that point, so Finnish military was able to be prepared, and uh, uh, there was a uh, conflict uh, or war that is w- well known as the the Winter War in the uh, in the winter of 1939 to 1940, which uh, Finland gave uh, stiff, very stiff resistance to the Red Army onslaught and uh, managed to uh, hold it at bay with uh, great cost. And uh, Finland was able to uh, remain independent after that war. And there was an uneasy interbellum during which um, the Soviet Union applied ever-increasing pressure towards Finland. And when the Nazi Nazi Germany invaded uh, Russia in the summer of 1941, that was also an opportunity for for Finland to uh, try and regain the territory it had lost. To the Soviet Union, which was uh, about ten percent of its, its land mass, mm-hmm. so that that was the uh, continuation war. There was uh, in 1941 a phase where Finland basically retook all the territory 
it had lost and uh, a little bit more mm -hmm. and uh, then the uh, front line basically uh, more or less stabilized to uh, one point and then in 1944 there was a grand uh, soviet counteroffensive which uh, forced Finland to a big uh, military crisis but uh, just like in the winter war Finland was able to uh, overcome this onslaught as well well let me pause you there because up to this point you've got this this back and forth fighting with with the Soviet Union now the way that i recall learning about this as a child in american schools was a very simple map that showed in europe who fought on which side in the second world war and yeah. because finland was fighting off the the soviet uh, invasion it was listed as an ally of nazi germany and it was only later that in, in further reading and understanding the nuances, I discovered it wasn't quite as simple as that. It wasn't Hitler, Mussolini, and the, the leadership of Finland getting together, conspiring to take over Europe. The Finnish yeah. situation was very much centered on what do we need to do to save our country from the Soviet Union, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in practical terms... One could say that Finland was uh, in every possible way uh, allied to Germany because there were uh, German troops in, uh, in the north of Finland that were uh, defending and uh, in the first years trying, trying to take uh, Soviet ter territory. Mm -hmm. But there was al always this um, uh, longevity to Finnish uh, strategic thinking right. part of, in, at, at, with a part of our... Uh, political and military leadership that uh, as a democratic nation Finland already at that time it was more aligned with the allied nations instead of Germany though with Germany we had uh, cultural and historic ties as well but uh, mm -hmm. as, a, as a democratic nation we were much more in tune with uh, the rest of Scandinavia and uh, and the western allies than uh, we were with uh, with a European dictatorship, whether or not it was uh, the Soviet Union or, or Nazi Germany, for that matter. Right. But uh, it was a really difficult time for Finland because uh, no matter uh, what our uh, political uh, and attitudes might have been at the time, uh, it was a simple and cruel realpolitik that uh, made really uh, Nazi Germany the only only possible ally for us uh, against against Russia because uh, there were while there were attempts to ally with Sweden uh, those came to nothing uh, mm -hmm. partly in, due to Soviet pressure. Right, and it's important to note that eventually Finland did fight to disarm the the German forces defending Lapland in the north, but that came with uh, a, a real burden. Because the origins of Finlandization, as, as we know the term in the Cold War, really came from the Moscow Treaty in September, I believe, of 1944. This was essentially an imposed treaty from, from the Soviets that involved giving up land, forcing Finland to hold war crimes trials for its wartime political leaders, demobilize its armed forces. And also, if I, if I have it right, did it not lead to a 50-year lease for a crucial part of Finland's territory very close to the capital, Helsinki, 
tell us about that. Porcala, is that right? Yes, yes. So uh, it's a small uh, jutting out to the uh, to the Baltic Sea that mm-hmm. is about uh, roughly forty kilometers distant from uh, from Helsinki, and uh, it was chosen in part because of its uh, location near to the capital, but also because it it contained a Finnish heavy cost or artillery installation as well. So the Soviets knew that it had uh, some ready assets that uh, were specifically F- Finnish authorities were uh, not permitted to remove any any military equipment from there. Hmm. And I think importantly, with the Soviet control of Estonia, across the water, if you have both the, the Finnish side with that peninsula and you have the Estonian coast, you can easily range your weapons and control access into and out of St. Petersburg. So for a Soviet strategic planner, it was important in this imposed treaty to get this land, but it did involve that and the other territorial concessions did involve relocating something upward of 10% of the population of Finland, didn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, the uh, t- 10% of the uh, population, that's uh, really the uh most of the population that resided in uh, in, in the Karelian Isthmus, uh, which mm-hmm. was also basically they, they were uh, uprooted after winter war and they were uh, the ones that had returned there after, after the offensive uh, beginning of the continuation war. They, they had to basically uh, uproot themselves again and return to uh, finish uh, new borders right. at the time. So, but there was obviously in in the Porkkala Porkkala base region there were there was a Finnish population there as well, yeah. and they they had to obviously evacuate as well. I remember a few months ago I was speaking with Professor Ethan Shiner at uh, University of California Davis in the United States, and we were talking about the Olympics at length. And one of the side stories that I don't know if we put on the chatter episode was. Uh, that in 1952, when Helsinki hosted the Summer Olympics, Porkala was where the Soviet team stayed. They they did not stay in mm. the Olympic Village. They actually stayed on this uh, imposed Soviet military base that had been there for some eight years. Um, even though it was a 50-year lease, my understanding is eventually in the 1950s, it was it was given back to to Finland. But that was not really the end of Finlandization as the as the phrase is known. So with all this as background, you have the Moscow Treaty, which is imposing these conditions upon Finland. But these conditions are not one-time things, like give us some land and then you're completely free. It contained provisions like you must legalize the Communist Party. You must disband all associations hostile to the Soviet Union. And importantly, we will set up what we call the Allied Control Commission, to supervise compliance with the treaty. Uh, tell us about the the Soviet members of that commission and how it, in a sense, infringed upon Finland's sovereignty. Yes, so uh, the, the control commission, uh, I think the most uh, salient detail to consider is that uh, the control commission, when it's set up in Helsinki, in, in Hotel Torni, which was a large, towering structure still still in Helsinki mm-hmm. was that they had the right to uh, 
visit any base, any installation, anywhere, and uh, request any documents that they saw fit. So, uh, after the control commission arrived and started exerting its uh, authority, that literally meant that uh, any Finn who had done, uh, who, who could consider himself uh, done something during the uh, either the Winter War or the Continuation War, something that could be deemed offensive uh, either to the Soviet Union or indeed the Finnish communists that now could could actually exert uh, political influence, knew that they were no longer safe. And uh, that actually did cause a, uh, a movement to the uh, Swedish uh, coast. There was a flight of, uh, of a number of people who were in danger. Uh, I think there, there's one good example is the, um, is the Stella Polaris, which was basically uh, the head of uh, and, and the upper echelons of Finnish uh, radio intelligence uh, mm -hmm. fleeing Finland to Sweden with uh, most of uh, most of the intel that they could uh, take with them. So I mean, and also you have to consider that uh, at the same time, uh, because of the Finnish communists were able to uh, attain a measure of influence they had never previously experienced, uh, they also were able to infiltrate the state police, known, mm. known as Valpo. And there was a communist in minister of the interior at the time. So hmm. if you uh, count in uh, uh, a Soviet control commission, you count in the Finnish communists, you count in a state police that's uh, uh, more than welcome to uh, do their bidding, then uh, you have a have an equation that's uh, very uncomfortable to uh, to to a great deal of Finns. Absolutely, and it it starts to debunk this myth of Finlandization as some you know wonderful, peaceful. This image of Finns and and Russians living in some kind of happy, neutral peace, because obviously. The people of Finland giving up some measure of their sovereignty to the Russians through the conditions of, of this treaty. And then also the agreement of so the so-called agreement of friendship, cooperation, and mutual assistance that was signed in the late 1940s, which committed Finland to defend the Soviet Union if Germany or any of its allies were to actually attack the Soviet Union. But a real practical impact of that for the, the Finnish people was that they, that treaty essentially forced the Finns to turn down the Marshall Plan. And at a time when yeah. Finland, like the rest of Europe, was struggling with recovery from the war and the devastating toll that it had taken, especially in, in eastern Finland, that the offer of the European Recovery Program had to be declined, even though Parliament had voted to participate. Is that right? Yes, and uh, the clear reason was that the Soviet Union had made its uh, feelings on the Marshall Marshall Plan well known, not only to Finland, but to the entirety of the Warsaw Pact as well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work 
of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. It's amazing. The more I I learn about this period uh, from the late 1940s through the 1950s in particular, that Finlandization, which in my mind was always just a case of benign neutrality, it, it really looks like the Soviets are managing Finnish relations much more like they would manage relations with a member of the Warsaw Pact, simply not forcing Finland to sign the Warsaw Pact, but very similar. Of course, the Warsaw Pact wasn't in effect for the full period, right? It it wasn't there at the time of these first treaties between the Soviet Union and Finland, but it did obviously affect the entire landscape of Eastern Europe from uh, certainly in the 1950s and 60s. And that's where I want to move now, Auntie, because in the 1950s and early 1960s, there were two infamous examples that show the effect of Finlandization on the ability of the Finnish government and Finnish people to exercise self-determination and make their own policies. The first one is known as the Night Frost Crisis, which I've got to say sounds like the title of a Brad Thor thriller novel. The (laughs) Night Frost Crisis has to be I, I hate to you know celebrate a crisis, but that is just one hell of a name. Tell us about what happened in in 1958. So uh, basically, in uh, in 1958, in late summer, uh, there was uh, President Kekkonen had had only been uh, in power for uh, for two years at that point, and uh, he was still relatively unknown to the Soviet Union. So it, there was not still an established rapport, and uh, the uh, creation of a government was was really difficult at that at that time. It it only happened uh, after the fourth attempt, and there was a uh, social democratic uh, prime minister called Fargerholm. And uh, the problem was that there were several politicians who were already blacklisted by the Soviet Union. And uh, President Kekkonen had had tried to make it known to the former of the government that uh, with with these people, you you had to be really careful in case the Soviet Union starts pulling its weight. But uh, the government uh, was formed partially with some of these people still included. And... uh, and the, another problem was that the Finnish Communist Party, dis, despite it winning a sizable amount of uh, votes in the parliamentary elections, it wasn't included. So the Soviet Union was not pleased. And uh, if you add in these uh, attacks in the press, both from the Soviet side and also from the from the Finnish side, let's just say that there was uh, soup in the kettle <laughs> and it was starting to boil. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Soviets started to uh, 
make their feelings known by uh, by applying both diplomatic and economic pressure because naturally uh, Finland had severe economic reparations that had to be made to the Soviet Union so the Finnish uh, Soviet uh, trade relations were of uh, paramount importance to to Finland mm-hmm. so there was economic pressure being applied and there was also diplomatic pressure being applied and uh, applied and even even the KGB uh, told uh, the pres- president Kekkonen that uh, the government that was born would simply not do. Mm. So this is such an interesting case because it ended up, you know, with with real damage to Finland. The Finnish economy was damaged because Moscow had cut off trade and prohibited trade with other countries in the Soviet orbit. But yet in the end, Finland was was not invaded. In part this is due to Khrushchev who who was not at that point, interested in invading uh, a neighbor. But it also relied on Kekkonen himself, that that Khrushchev felt, I may not like what he does with the government, but I trust that he's not going to go too far. He knows where our so-called red lines are. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, I I would say so, because um, I think one of the ways that Kekkonen did manage this crisis was that he basically let the Fargo home government fall and he, he withdrew even his own yeah. own support and uh, it's tricky tricky uh, you know in this stage of uh, you know because uh, Kekkonen was as, as I mentioned earlier Kekkonen was still relatively unknown so there there was not uh, what you might call uh, direct and uh, comfortable relationships between the Soviet and uh, Finnish uh, leadership at this time the, at the highest level. So it was it was action actions that uh, shouted the loudest. So mm-hmm. by by uh, by forming a government that was mostly of his own own party and basically uh, making it known to the Soviets that uh, they could deal with him. Right. It it was it was a way to actually move forward and uh, and and soon after uh, the new government was formed, Khrushchev did uh, did you know uh, lift mm-hmm. lift the sort of uh, blocking hands from uh, from Finnish uh, Soviet ties and uh, and everything could uh, move forward again. Okay, so crisis crisis averted, but it was only a few years later when there was another crisis, and in this case. It goes back to what we spoke about a few minutes ago, that so-called agreement of friendship, cooperation, and mutual assistance. This is when the Soviet foreign minister, Gromyko, actually gave formal notice to the Finnish ambassador that they would need to consult to secure the borders of their nations from the threat from West Germany and its allies. This is around the time of the Berlin crisis. Yeah. And this could have gone much worse, but tell us briefly the contours of how the the note crisis was resolved, and we did not end up in a situation where Finland was forced to take up take up arms against West Germany and NATO. Yeah, uh, the the first thing you need to understand is um, that especially uh, the agreement of friendship, cooperation, and mutual assist- assistance that Finland was forced to. Uh, 
forced to make with the Soviet Union. It was basically a, a threat that uh, that was always hanging uh, atop of uh, above, above mm-hmm. the uh, Finnish political leadership because it was especially uh, the military uh, consideration of that agreement that was uh, that was a real real gun that that the Soviet leadership could always load and and point at Finland because. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at that time, like you mentioned, the uh, there was the crisis of the Berlin Wall, and uh, the notice was really a multi-pronged missile. That, in part, it was aimed at Finland, and Russia wanted to, the Soviet Union wanted to make sure that uh, that Finland was firmly still in the Soviet sphere, that it could uh, make sure, certain that in the event of an actual crisis, Finland would do as it's told and would would uh, uh, stay on the Soviet line. But it was also a warning to, to, to the rest of Scandinavia because, because the notice was public. And the interesting thing is that uh, there was actually very little in the content of the notice that was directly aimed at Finland. Most of it was actually aimed at uh, West Germany because uh, Right. It seemed yeah. that the Soviet Union uh, was uh, forever uh, in tune to that the, th- the threat would come from Germany still at this point. But the thing is that uh, there was also the notice also suited uh, President Kekkonen's own political uh, goals because uh, there was uh, still uh, at this stage President Kekkonen hadn't, hadn't solidified his hold on uh, on the Finnish uh, political class, and mm-hmm. there was uh, there was oppos- opposition, and uh, the notice because it was it played to Kekkonen's strengths, uh, specifically his uh, relationship uh, with the Soviet leadership, and uh, he could use the threat that the notice provided to actually do a dissolution of parliament and uh, prepare for new elections because. Uh, in that way, all the parties that might be in opposition to him would have to campaign against each other as well. So that was actually, uh, e- even though there was a threat to Finland mm-hmm. specifically in that notice, but there was also a uh, possibility for Kekkonen in domestic politics. Ultimately, Antti, Kekkonen went to the Soviet Union and met face to face with Khrushchev and basically made the point that, you know, we're better off not having these formal military consultations. Things will get ugly, but don't worry. We're neutral. We have our friendship treaty with you. We're okay. Let's not do this. And it appears that Khrushchev agreed. Now I had known the contours of this, but I didn't realize until I read your article that this meeting was actually humiliating just in terms of its location. Instead of meeting the the Finnish leader in Helsinki or or even having him as a host in Moscow, they forced Kekkonen to go all the way to Novosibirsk in Siberia, which is really making the point, isn't it, that the Soviet Union still does control your destiny? I mean, uh, Khrushchev could have made the point of... Uh... Making making President Kekkonen come to any any fishing fishing village in the uh, in the Siberi- Siberian outback, and Kekkonen would have had to comply. So yeah. I mean, there was really no context. Yeah. Well, the 
impact of Finlandization, we, we've talked through the, the history of it and some of the, the cases here. There, there's a mixed interpretation of it now, and, and I'd like your perspective on how this is perceived in Finland now. Is, is that this Cold War period, especially in the 50s and 60s, is this perceived as good strategic decision-making by Kekkonen and others to preserve at least some semblance of Finnish independence, or is it largely perceived as a tragedy because Finland did not truly exercise full sovereignty for many decades? Therein lies the interesting uh, point in itself, because uh, depending on whom you ask, it's uh, the answers always differ because the perception Mm -hmm. differs wildly. There, there is a, Ever, ever since the Kekkonen presidency and and even during it, there was always this discussion of uh, what constitutes brilliant foreign diplomatic maneuvering, what mm-hmm. constitutes uh, giving up our sovereign rights as an independent nation, mm-hmm. uh, what is kowtowing to the Soviet Union. I, I think that this period in Finnish history... Uh, it will it will remain one of those th- those things that will be debated for uh, decades and decades to come because uh, in a way there is a perception and a reality of imminent threat imminent danger but at the same time those were years of peace mm-hmm. Th- there was political uh, upheaval there was um, the the greatest generation of, of Finns numerically grew up during that period, mm-hmm. the, after after the wars, so so it was a coming of age to a very large uh, generation, and they could live it in peace. There there was no war between Finland or anyone else at the time. Right. But it's so much a matter of perception. Mm-hmm. If if you were to ask someone in uh, in the higher echelons of military, you you would find that. Uh, there was a great deal of pressure because uh, you had to prepare plans for a defensive war in which you knew that you would be virtually alone next to a superpower. But uh, if you were to ask uh, a Finnish uh, leftist who, who had come of age during a time when you could freely speak your mind, you could be as politically act- active as you wanted, and if if you're simply a young person that didn't uh, know of politics uh, until the end of Kekkonen's era in the uh, in 1981, mm-hmm. you would simply know know that there was peace and there was uh, economic growth. So you you might have only positive feelings of that period. So it's like I said, it's a matter of perception. You make a good point there, which is late in this period as you get into the 1970s. Uh, and 80s, even before the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, you know, Finland did manage to host the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe in 1975. And Finland did join the European Free Trade Association, later on European Union. And then, of course, this legal structure with the Soviet Union fell apart. And in the 1990s, those old treaties were, were, were discarded and, and replaced by more equal treaties. So, so I guess it ended well in that Finland did not experience what 
Ukraine is experiencing now, which is the feeling that there must be an invasion and more stern measures taken. But you're right, what a cost for generations of Finns. That's the perspective in Finland. I'd like to close with you applying it to the rhetoric you have been hearing in some quarters about Finlandization as a model for Ukraine. Based on this history, based on the the cultural experience that, that came with it, do you think that there is any reasonable application of this model? Is this something that Ukrainians who are literally being killed right now, is this something that they should aspire to or they should resist? I, I think that uh, considering what we know uh, today of uh, what what has been happening in, in Ukraine, I don't think there is any, any possibility for, uh, for this kind of uh, forced quote-unquote neutrality on Ukraine, because uh, to make any sovereign state uh, relive the conditions that Finland had to face in uh, during the years of danger immediately after after Second World War and uh, really uh, throughout the Cold War, the uh, the feeling of uh, being all alone and and trying to navigate. Uh, Mm-hmm. both domestically and internationally essentially a minefield where you were trying to uh, trying to integrate yourself with the west and yet you were all, also trying to remain friendly with the east and uh, obviously a finnish case study uh, the, the attempt of trying to apply it to another sovereign nation mm-hmm. and uh, forgetting the history and the uh, the impact of cultural relations and uh, every sort of conceivable consequence and uh, cause and effect that's related to it, the the possibilities for egregious problems Mm -hmm. is so overwhelming Mm -hmm. that uh, it simply boggles the mind. So I I can't imagine a situation where Ukraine would would somehow feel comfortable in in this kind of position. We will leave it there. Anti, thanks for joining the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you, David. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. You will also get access to special events and other content by doing that, such as the expert panel on the Electoral Count Act this Thursday, April 28th. This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Your audio engineer is Kara Schillen. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.